Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we get to talk to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And after uh, hounding him for two years, we have today, <laughs> I will say, my friend, Ruben Fologi. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Dick. It was Gabriel Malfatti that uh, first brought you into my awareness. When did you move from Mizzou? Before I finished my training, I had to do a, a year-long internship. It was kind of like a residency for psychology grad students. So I moved to Gainesville, Florida for a year before I actually graduated. So I did that in fall of 2018. Mm-hmm. So that's when I left Columbia. I left around the summer of 2018. So you have an interesting journey getting to Columbia. You were born in Georgia. Is- B- born and raised in Georgia, yes. My parents were born in Nigeria, and so they there were strong values of education in my family. And so I didn't grow up playing sports like a lot of my teammates. And so when I got to college, like I really embodied student athlete and, you know, my academic performance was important to me. Uh, And not to say that wasn't the case for some of my teammates, but I also learned that a lot of my teammates, they didn't have the same value structure that I had, especially with education. They didn't always recognize the value of the college education. And so as my relationship with football started to, I don't know, it's like a relationship where you just, you see the breakup coming. I knew (laughs) that uh, (laughs) the breakup was coming and I had the the academic prowess to pursue my uh, doctorate in counseling psychology. And I kind of wondered how, what caused your parents to come over from Nigeria? Was it? It's a pretty traditional immigrant story. Um, Everybody's looking for greater opportunity and the quote unquote American dream. And, you know, it's very common for Nigerians, especially if you you have some some money in your family to like go to London or come to the States and study and go back home. Um, And so I think my parents came here for school. You know, they, they both got professional degrees. Yeah, then they, they brought us into existence, yeah. me and my siblings. So you came uh, and accomplished your goal, uh, educational psychology. Is that your PhD? Counsel- counseling psychology. Counseling I mean, psychology, The yeah. program is called Educational School and Counseling Psychology, so I could see how <laughs> folks say educational, but my particular program was counseling psych within you know this broader department. Yeah, yeah. And now you are a uh, psychologist, consultant, speaker, educator, lover of humans, whatever title fits. Musician, musician, artist, musician, whatever fits at the time. (laughs) My favorite one's good human, though. I like being just a good, warm human. That's my favorite one. I didn't hear in your list uh, activist. Uh, Well, I guess the the way that I think of being a... um, a human, and I, we'll even take good human out of it. Just being a human is you're living an active life where, you know, activism doesn't become an identity that you put on and take off. It becomes the way you embody the life experience. I just downloaded a Kindle book, and in it, he's talking about 
total embodiment meditation. Mm, mm, mm. And you, the way you just put that phrase reminded yes. me of that. And, and it also reminded me of sort of the way I try to live my life, mm. a total embodiment. Mm -hmm. I'm who I am, you know, here, there, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. It's, it's the mm -hmm. same uh, interaction with the world. Mm -hmm. So some people may try to think, uh, Ruben, Ruben, uh, uh, Mizzou, uh, Ruben, uh, that funny last name. Uh, <laughs> he had something to do with uh, some kind of protest or something, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> If, if we're lucky, uh, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, if we're lucky, some of the history is getting rewritten. And, you know, I was just I was just doing an interview with a student at Mizzou who she's struggling because she's in her senior year and she's just starting to learn about what happened in 2015. And this is a, a black woman. And she's I think there was some she didn't call it this, but I picked up on maybe some shame or guilt about not knowing what had happened, at least the depth. And um, she's fired up, you know, she's doing a whole documentary on it. And um, I guess what was coming out of that interview was the, univer the, the university as a whole seems to have missed an opportunity to embrace what happened in 2015 and make it a part of the identity of Mizzou. Right. And, and they, it seems like they've chosen instead to make it this taboo thing, scapegoat me and other folks who are involved. And it's become... Um, this stigmatized topic that folks can't talk about. And if you do, you, you get kind of shamed, it, which is, which is, um, you know, if I let it get to me, it can make me feel sad because we really wanted to only make Mizzou a better place for Mizzou and the surrounding community. I think you're telling the story of Mike Middleton, who in his early days did mm. protesting, but people forgot that too. True, true. I think it's easy to get lost. Like the con again, the contributions of folks can get lost if you don't understand your history or embrace the history. Yeah. Even the ugly parts. The ugly parts sometimes, if you embrace them, they can become the foundation for a lot of beautiful growth. Mm -hmm. And actually, Mike Mike Middleton, um, we use the demands that he submitted as a template <laughs> for our demands. So right. you know, it's it's funny how things come full circle. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what you said about the, the young woman not hearing about it and even in her senior year lets me know that we need money donors more than we need to celebrate that part of our history. I mean, sometimes it just comes down to money. Yeah, it's unfortunate because then higher education becomes less about higher education and more about revenue, profit, and politics. And exactly. Mm -hmm. That, you know, makes it a very, what, what's supposed to be one of our most liberal institutions in the country becomes one of the most conservative spaces because you're, you are censoring yourself based on your revenue generating lines or what state politics, what's going on in state politics. Right. And what you can say and what you can't say and. Um, so in terms of what you're grateful for in your past, uh, you had a lot of teamwork, I'm sure, back mm. there. There was bonds that were created. Uh, mm. Can you, mm. how do you view what you've been grateful for, for uh, the things in your past? Whew. 
Man, what a question, Dick. Um, there's so much, Dick. I, I think, you know, part of my healing journey, because what happened was, what happened in 2015, and I don't, and it, it, did, it wasn't just 2015, it was the build up to 2015 too. There was a lot of trauma happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think people understand what it's like to be a black student at a predominantly white institution. I mean, it is really like you are, you know, the adopted child that doesn't get treated the same as like the, the kids who are the biological kids. Like you, you are part of the family and you're also, it's different. Mm-hmm. And I think football prepared me. It's, it's, it's so beautiful how the universe always prepares you for the next thing. And so football prepared me for Mizzou because when I was a student athlete, that was when I was starting to really get curious about how not only I was influencing my environment, but how my environment was influencing me. Yeah. You know, how there would be conflicting values about us being a student athlete. Like they would say that we're there to be students, but the actions and, you know, the unspoken norms suggested that you were a revenue generator for the university, period, first and foremost. Then whatever happened with school is the next thing. And so I think beginning to understand how institutions through their policies and practices affect the individual, I started to, I brought that to Mizzou. And so, you know, coming in, I had pretty thick skin because of some of the things the coaches would say to us, you know, it was like, ah, this is nothing. And, you know, now looking back on it, there were microaggressions that would happen all the time. So, you know, being asked to play rap music in class by my professors and, you know, I don't think there was ill intent with the comment, but it reinforces the stereotypes that there are narrow ideas of what Black people can be and what they can like. Like, I'm a musician. I love rap. I love trap music. And I also like uh, R&B. I love some country music. You know, I, I like some pop music. I like rock, rock music. You know, there's so many things I could like. But again, the stereotypes of what Black people like, oh, they just like rap. Um, or being introduced as a football player, and I'm a year and a half into my PhD program. And, you know, anybody who's done something new typically struggles with feeling like they belong. And so these comments, you know, I struggled for a little bit, you know, it's like, damn, do I really belong here? It's like, is this, you know, is this student athlete thing going to continue to be the highlight of my identity, or at least what people see or perceive of me? Again, microaggressions. Right. You know, this idea or stereotype that black folks uh, can only be athletes and entertainers Mm -hmm. and successful, successful in those pursuits. And so that was annoying me, but it it wasn't it didn't push me over. You know, I I think I had pretty tough skin. And that's not to say that people who are impacted by microaggressions don't have tough skin, because what it does is it has a cumulative effect. So I think it was building up. Right. And then what happened is in August of 2014, Michael Brown, um, unarmed black man in Ferguson, was shot and killed. Unarmed black boy, essentially. He was 18. And that tension, you know, you got, it was two hours away. You got students from that community, black and white, who are on campus. It was on campus. And so, I mean, it was a very difficult time for me because I'm in this social justice, you know, this top five counseling site program with social justice values. And in my head, I had this expectation that we were going to get on a bus and go to Ferguson and like support the movement, start protesting. 
But what I got from my environment was a lot of uh, ambivalence, disconnection, seemed like distancing or minimizing. And that for me, again, talk about being in a family. If something happens to you that affects you, ideally you want your family to give a damn. (laughs) And these people that I was in school with for, you know, two, three years at that point, you know, and it wasn't even just my classmates. It was faculty and staff too. There was just like a, a disconnect. And so I needed to find people who cared about this issue like me. I didn't care if you were a graduate student like me, undergrad, black, white. I needed folks who cared about this. And so to bring this full circle, you know, I went to my first demonstration by hosted by a group called MU for Mike Brown. It was started by three queer black women, three queer undergraduate black women. And, you know, I played in front of millions on TV, thousands in some of the largest stadiums in the country. And I've never felt something as powerful as this demonstration. I mean, you have these these black women speaking truth to power in a way I've just never, ever heard. And so that would be my introduction into what people might call activism. You know, I started organizing with the group and that's how I started to have meet people who could also teach me and hold me accountable. It's it's like, I'm not just oppressed because of my, I mean, I am oppressed as my, with my identity as a black person, but that's not it. There's I'm an intersectional being, Mm -hmm. you know, I also carry privilege, you know, as an able-bodied man. And so really being in spaces where I could delve into these concepts of intersectionality, institutional oppression, that would begin to give me the skills to continue to um, develop as a change agent and eventually enact what I was learning in my environment. So I guess to bring it full circle, I'm grateful for just this cumulative building of my identity as a change agent. I don't know if there's just one experience, but it seems like everything's constantly building uh, on top of each other to get me where I'm at. Yeah. Our subconscious holds it all. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. so much of our behaviors are automatic until we have questions, until Mm. something comes in and starts to rattle rattle the cage in there. For sure. And so uh, you had a lot of self-examination, no doubt, that you were going through. And and you used the word that I instantly picked up on. You used the word healing. Mm -hmm. There's healing that you've been doing, which implies that you have been wounded. Yeah. You've been injured. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to someone recently about uh, moral injury Mm -hmm. and uh, how so much in the military that It happens so much in the military, they have a category called moral injury Mm. uh, and moral injury in war. And and there are a lot of folks that don't like the the term PTSD because of the Mm. disorder. They like to understand it as PTSI, a post-traumatic stress injury. They were Mm. injured, they were wounded. Don't, mm-hmm. don't give me this disorder stuff. Mm-hmm. I've been wounded, treated as an injury. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can, you can automatically sort of sense the difference. Mm-hmm. So in, in your situation, there were, as you called them, microaggressions. Those are uh, more than pinpricks. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're injuries 
mostly mm -hmm. invisible. Yeah. That you're you've been healing from, and, and as much as you feel to address that mm -hmm. to help us understand that, mm -hmm. uh, to me, I'm very interested. I, mm -hmm. I I think my listeners will be as well. Yeah. Broadly speaking, Dick, an audience. When we come into this world, you know, I believe that we are blank slates in that we are. I think, well, well, I'll say that. I think there's a blank slate part of us, but there's a lot of wisdom that's already built in too. Mm -hmm. You know, so I actually, as I say this, I'm feeling hesitant about the blank slate thing. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is that from when we're born, throughout our development, we're programmed. And you said something earlier and I wanted to jump in, but I'm like, let me not just jump in. But until we realize that we have been programmed, we run on autopilot. The, the technical word is socialization. We're constantly being programmed by our, our people we care about, the messages we tell ourselves, the institutions that we're a part of, school, religion, all of these things teach us who we are, who we aren't. And we live in a society that values separation, separation in the forms of isms, racism, classism, sexism, ableism, any ism you can think of. And to me, this is a form of illness, spiritual illness, definitely. And you know, that can affect your mental and physical self, like literally. And so we're all injured to a certain degree, you know? And of course there's advantage and disadvantage based on your identity. Like I know I'm advantaged and I own privilege as a man in the society and you know, at the expense of women and vice versa with race, I know I am targeted because of, you know, the color of my skin. Um, and that advantages white folks as a collective. And so that is not the true nature of humans. Like there's a deep inner, the human genome project, you know, international group of scientists got together and mapped out uh, the genetic makeup of humans. And 99.9% .9 of our genetic makeup is the same. And so the point one that we argue about is, is just that, the point one that we argue about. And so I say that to say that um, we're all walking around wounded. And I think Don Ruiz and um, what's that book? The Four Agreements, I think yeah. he did, he wrote. He and talks the about- the Fifth Agreement. He, huh? And the Fifth Agreement that he and his son wrote together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the metaphor that we're all walking around ill, constantly um, having people touch our wounds and touching other people's wounds until victim. we begin to heal. That first, uh, so, that first level is the victim level that mm -hmm. they talked about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, I think part of my my um, journey, Dick, is to remember that we start with oneness. And then after that becomes separation, not separation towards oneness. Because with that framework, it allows me to have a lot of compassion for the people who hurt me, who, you know, who inflict racial trauma on me or who don't understand my humanity. And then even a lot of compassion for the privilege I have. Like, instead of owning a lot of guilt and shame with how I've treated women in the past, I recognize that I was infected by the same system that influences all of us. And so 
that doesn't let me off the hook. But instead of the shame and guilt, I just take responsibility for it in the present. It's like, okay, I'm a man. How can I make this? How can I leverage my privilege in the society to help? And so I think to get to that place, it takes a deep and committed process of self-inquiry to really pull back those layers um, of socialization to decide what fits for you. A lot of the things that I learned growing up didn't fit for me and I was stripping them back and, you know, through college and um, what, when I was in college and then when I got to graduate school. And so the change that it's so interesting, the change that was happening inside of me became the change that I was starting to see outside of me because uh-huh. I would no longer let people not care about my existence. Mm-hmm. At least without, at least if they did, did not care, they were going to hear, hear from me, you know, or, you know, I'm not just going to let this institution that's taking my money continue to treat me like a second class citizen. You know, I, I belong here. I paid my tuition to get here. I'm a human. So you either got to do your job better or you need to, you need to, we need to find somebody else to be in your job. And that was, you know, essentially what 2015 was about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's remind folks of the handle that you were using, hashtag concern concerned students cons- 1950. Yeah, concerned student 1950. Um, my memory serves me correct. That was the first, that was the year the first uh, black student was admitted into the University of Missouri, 1950. It's not too, it's not long ago, y'all. Right. I was six years old. I was probably not even, I wasn't even thought about. My yeah, parents right. were young. <laughs> right. And that was not a, let's see, how would I phrase the question? You were triggered by a group of three women that had already formed a, mm-hmm. an organization, sort of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your Concerned Students 1950 went in a complimentary way with that. Yeah. It must have, mm-hmm. it must have taken it slightly different direction. What was... What was the need to have a second label? I'm just so that's a great that's a great question because I don't think a lot of people understand the timeline of what was going on. So, you know, I went to the Diane around December of 2014, and like, there's no blueprint for this. So f- students, they're still students, got to go to class and take care of their responsibilities, but they care about these issues so much. This is like a becomes like an extracurricular activity, and so. You, there's like usually a circuit of students who are active and you kind of know of one another. And so I think going to that die-in, I had an introduction to the people who, yeah, I, I say who are about that action, but yeah. the people who were involved and committed to helping make Mizzou a better place. And it was typically black students and it was typically black women, you know, yeah. many, of the, many times at the core of things. And so that's how I started to meet a lot of the would-be members of Concerned Student 1950. Like we didn't wake up and say, we're going to start a group Concerned Student 1950. It, it was created actually after the homecoming demonstration that we did. Somebody, media was following us and we were trying to shake them off our back and they asked for our name and we didn't want to give us, give individual names at that point. So uh, I think one of the black women in the group gave them Concerned Student 1950. Great. <laughs> I love it. It was an organic. It, it yes. Just, that little branch just 
grew right out of the tree. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. And then there was, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't write down the name, but it has four letters, acronym S A S C C A, the Student Coalition for Critical Action. Ah, yes, yes, yes. It yes. reminded me of SNCC back in the 60s that uh, John Lewis helped start, right? Man, I, I love the historical background that you're bringing to this conversation. And I just had chills go through my body when you said me too. that. Because, me too. <laughs> because a lot of times it's when you're in it, you don't always make those connections. But yeah, so what happened was MU for Mike Brown, the 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 women who organized it, I think they were graduating or they were on their way out. They were either burnout or graduating, but I think it was a little bit of both, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And um, so myself and maybe three other students started to organize for that group. And eventually that group kind of fa phased out, you know? And so I was like, okay, we need something, um, but we want something that's not affiliated with the university, but a space where students can come and focus on the needs of marginalized students on the campus. It, I don't care who you are, you know, or your race, your identity, but the idea with this space was a space where we can have open conversation with each other. So we sat in a circle, sort of like counseling, and we would talk about issues. And then based on what we talk about, we will come up with action to address those issues uh, on campus. And so it was a very active, fluid group. And yeah, so that's a group that I started after uh, MU for Mike Brown around the, around the, in the spring, early summer of 2015. And it, it ran through 2015. Uh, very powerful space. How long had you been at Mizzou as a grad student at that time? I, I wasn't sure what yeah. year you came. I think about two years at the time. I got there in fall 2015. No, I'm lying. I got there in fall 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and so about two-ish two years. Yeah. And you had uh, two years to go or so. Well, uh, in your residency, yeah. I had four until four I was completely across the finish line. Um, but I don't even think, I mean, I think I was just working on my master's at that point. Because you know, I got my master's and my PhD in the same program. Gotcha. Uh -huh. um, so I don't even know if I was even looking towards the, the end at that point. I just knew that I'm going to be here for a while and I can't sit, I can't be here and watch this place continue to treat people who look like me um, yeah. and, and you know, the way they were doing. There was just too much indifference, too much indifference. Yeah. You had something to do with a place uh, called The Bridge. Oh, you know about The Bridge, Dick? <laughs> you, did your, you did your homework. Well, actually I had a, a young woman from Mizzou on that, uh, I, there were two women at the same time. One was part of the uh, educational program, at, at a grad program. The other was working at the bridge. So Teresa Metz mm. is yes. that a name that's familiar to you. She's a phenomenal human. Yes. And she and, and I think the other woman was maybe Soledad, but I can't pull a last name up. Uh, that one's not ringing a bell for me right yeah. now. I, I, I may be even saying it wrong, but anyway, they were on our show uh, to introduce a speaker from South Africa or from uh, Tanzania somewhere that was coming yeah. up. Uh, Terreri Trent. 
mm. was coming up to give a talk. Anyway, they were introducing the program and they came on the show to to amp it up and we got into the bridge and different things they were doing. Nice. They, they didn't drop your name, but uh, I, that's okay, you know. <laughs> so what did you have to do with the bridge? And what is the bridge? So <laughs> it's funny how history works, you know. Um, who tells history and, and why they add certain facts and why they leave certain ones out. It's so interesting. So, so to give context, you know, the College of Education housed my department and program, you know, so ESCP Education School Counseling Psychology, my counseling psychology program was in the College of Education. And we had had a center in our program in the counseling psych program that did a lot of engagement related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, they had a library, they had um, a space for students to come and learn. It was just a very active, like a center, you know, for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice related. Okay. And if you don't know about academia, space is a very political thing. And I think eventually that the space for that operation was removed <laughs> and I don't think it ever came back. And, uh -huh. you know, it's all political and I don't even know, I don't even know all the politics behind it, but I know that the that space and that idea disappeared. And so around 2014, you know, I was on fire. Like I was so frustrated that these very intelligent people were not doing things that, that I thought that they should be doing, like talking about diversity and social justice when right. the world is on fire and right. we're a college of education. So it was like, what the hell is the college doing? I don't see anything. And so the Dean at the time, uh, Catherine Cheval, she was holding like these small group meetings to kind of see what students needed and what they wanted. And I brought up the idea of the center and it was just the perfect timing, right, right place, I guess, right financial situation for the college, but they bid on it and they were like, let's, let's talk more about that. And so eventually we gave them kind of the idea of what this place could be for everybody in the college, staff, students, and faculty, like a hub for yeah. people to get this fix. Um, this fix, this training, this experience, this programming um, related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so myself and another graduate student, Taj Sconiers, we co-founded the bridge and um, we ran the bridge. We were the face of the bridge for, you know, throughout when it started through 2015. And it, so, this so yeah. Was that, a, this was a physical space mm -hmm. that um, had programming at certain hours. Yeah, so so we were kind of like the coordinators, and so we would, it was like our assistantship, you know, so that we would work about 20 hours, we get a little stipend, um, our tuition gets waived, um, and so we became like the staff of the center. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. And it's still in existence. It is. Teresa, I think Teresa is on, on over yeah. it right now. Yeah, so what you said earlier about this center that they had, that was some time from the past yeah. that got closed down or reallocated yeah. somewhere. 
and you uh, and do you know where the bridge is located on campus? Yeah, the bridge is in the College of Education. It's it's in, it's it got prime time real estate. Like it's wow. right when you walk in the College of Education to the right. Like it's a it's a it's a big thing. It's a, it was actually a very big deal for us to get the space that we got. And oh, okay. It created a lot of I think tension with folks in the college because they're like, why do they get this space <laughs> out of nowhere? Yeah. So I went to the same program. I graduated master's and PhD at education department at Mizzou. Oh, nice. So we, we're colleagues. We're family. That. Yeah, we're family. So when you say the education building, there were actually two. Uh, Townsend. Townsend. Yeah. You're talking Townsend, Townsend right. Okay. That's the newer That's the newer education building versus yeah. Hill, which is probably the older one. Right, exactly. Yeah, great. Well, a lot has happened since then. We've been talking past, but you're, I mean, you're down in Florida, right? Don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm living in Tampa, Florida right now, working as a licensed psychologist. Are you connected with a school or were you recently? Yeah. So, yeah, I have, you know, I have a, a daytime job, um, you know, working with USF. I work in their counseling center, uh, offering individual group. Uh, couples therapy and consultation on campus as needed okay and then you know the side hustle is just that everything else so you know speaking um consulting things like that so what what are you seeing i mean this has been a pretty dramatic uh time in our country since you left mizzou uh, mm -hmm. even before i mean you were part of the, the cusp there of, of of change, uh, mm -hmm. or at least uh, rattling so many bones mm -hmm. that were in our closets that uh, we we had to do something. Mm -hmm. So, how are you viewing the change that's going to come? You know, change is going to come. Uh, how are you viewing progress? Man, the questions, sheesh, these are good questions. <laughs> these are phenomenal questions. Uh, so I, I got to shout my, one of my favorite change agents from the 60s out, you know, Stokely Carmichael, you know, also known as Kwame Ture. Sure. He, he said, when the conditions of the masses of people become worse, and then the consciousness of the masses of the people increase, it creates the perfect condition for revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we are witnessing now. I think that there is, I don't know how folks, if you can even deny the level of suffering going on globally and definitely in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, with coronavirus and the lack of aid that has been given to the masses of people while you have a corporate loot, corporate loot, corporate loot. Um, that's L-O-O-T. Yes, corporate loot, you know, that's unfolding in front of us. Um, you know, that, that just, to me, that points out how, just how bad the conditions are. And then, of course, we can get into the, the pandemic of racism. We can get into Rona and how... Corona and how it's been handled. Um, but people are starting to recognize that this is dysfunctional. I mean, I think that was what was, you know, 
we saw this resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like people are not stupid. <laughs> and so I think what we're what we're about to see is something. I don't know what that something is, actually, no. um, because I think that there are a lot of forces for for the betterment of humanity. And I think there are some forces that are not concerned with the, the growth and the future trajectory of humanity. And so I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is I'm not about to wait and see. I know where my energy is going to be directed. And it's to getting people to ask questions, tough questions about themselves, other people, the institutions that we trust and we believe in or don't, depending on your identity and you know your relationship with these institutions. Um, and to just be a force for for positive change and connection. That's that's my commitment. And so when I when I reframe it as that, like I don't know what's gonna happen, but I know what my commitment is, then the anxiety that I feel about that ambiguity of I don't know where this is going. I don't know if, you know, you know, we're gonna have a coup in the government. I don't know if we're gonna be vaccinated mandatorily. I don't know any of that, but I know today I'm gonna give Dick my best interview. Um, you know, when I see my clients, I'm going to give them the best psychologist. You know, when I see the person without a, a, a home on the street, I'm going to give them the best smile. And if I have the money and I'm ready to give it, I want to give it. And so that's the way I live. When you gave that idea from Kwame uh, back in the day that led to the word revolution, you said something about when the, the masses do this and, and when the mm -hmm. masses uh, become more aware. Mm -hmm. It made me think that, that there's two sides to that coin mm -hmm. because there in, in our country, we are seeing two sets of masses. Mm -hmm. And one of them is thinking in revolution in one way. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other group is thinking of revolution in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And and it seems as though they're at odds with each other. Yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting prophecy that that's what's going to happen. But it, it applies. <laughs> you can't control who it applies to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's 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 true, uh, and that's why I don't know how the cars are going to fall out. But I yeah. know where where my commitment lies. But you know, Dick, I'm glad you brought up that because you're right. We are in a polarized time in our country. Yeah. yeah. Noam Chomsky he wrote a book called Manufactured Consent, huh. and it, it talks about how powerful media is in terms of pr propagandizing the country mm -hmm. because. When you really think about it, there really are no two sides. We have a group of people who have similar interests and probably different ways to get to those same things. And what happens is the folks who, <laughs> the, the minority of folks who hold the majority of wealth in this country, it is advantageous for them to polarize people, to say, you don't need to care about him because they're a person of color or they're black or you don't need to care about them because they're poor, or you don't need to care about them because they're Republican, or you don't need to care about them because they're Democrat, or 
you definitely don't need to care about them because they're independent. And because of that polarization, people don't understand the level of interconnectedness between what they want. And, and again, so and you don't have the masses of people, actually. You actually have subgroups of the masses, which I think can create an inhibiting effect on revolution. Because to be honest, like poor white folks and black folks actually got a lot in common, oh, you know, yeah. but because of racism, it's very hard to connect those groups. And that well, goes go back to your way back in our conversation, you you talked about separation, keeping yeah. people separated, the isms yes. and all. So yes. if you can keep people separated and divided, then you can control them. You can control them. Yeah, exactly. You can control them, especially with fear. Oh, my fear is such a powerful force of control. I mean, it, it will have people literally killing, killing other people. I mean, killing people that look like them, killing yeah. people who have similar interests as them. Um, and that's what we have a lot of. Like you can't, I don't even watch mainstream media anymore because it's so fear laden. And it's not, it, it, if, you, if you really think about it, when you watch, for the folks who are listening, tune in the media. And I want you to really listen to see if they address the core of an issue. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about poverty, it has to do with resources. Is the resources with the haves going to the resources, going to the people who have not? No, and nobody's talking about why that's not happening. We're not talking about capitalism killing our society. You know, we're not talking about racism, you know, killing our society. We're talking about the symptoms of the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, we hate Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or, you know, um, but the core of the issues and accountability and holding the people who again, who have these positions of power accountable, it's not something you see on media. Mm -hmm. You know, Trump, Trump, if media was, and it's not even just Trump, because to be honest, it, I don't, my personal perspective is, I don't think it matters who, let me, let me change that, what, how I'm going to say this. The machine is going to run the same, no matter what personality runs the machine. Biden or Trump, you know, now, are there going to be different lived experiences based on that? Yeah, for sure. Generally speaking, though, if you look at the statistics of poverty, foreign policy, you know, how we invest our money in education, public programs, not much has changed over the last several decades. And so, again, we have propagandized or we, we have fallen into propaganda as the general public. And so until we start connecting and having conversations about this and about the people that control us and socialize us, I think we just keep going in circles and circles and circles. But the only thing now is time is of the essence. Like the United States is not the country that it used to be. Like we don't have the same respect. Like it, there's this, a phrase called the jig is up. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it's just like America has shown other countries and this country and, and the citizens of this country who it is and it's not sustainable it's not sustainable mm -hmm. this is a sinking ship unless we do some things radically different relatively soon i think yes uh, some of my recent guests have uh, echoed what you just said 
actually, I think uh, Dr. King is the one that used the phrase radical, uh, it wasn't reconstruction, but there was a word after radical mm -hmm. that uh, a young man out in the Northwest is uh, working on a book to try to really tease that out in so many areas that you've already spoken about, plus, you know, healthcare and, and da, 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 that, that we need a, a radical change. And uh, I'm glad, glad to hear you saying it. I, I, I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that. <laughs> so you're living in a, it's, it's so interesting that you, you're in a, a somewhat of a wealthy area Tampa, Florida areas at. Uh... I mean, I, I live in a suburb, so there, there definitely is some some middle class, upper middle class um, things going on around me. Yeah, and and your clients are are students, or your clients are uh, paid clients, I guess, are people uh, in in that community. Well, and U USF is actually very unique because I think. Uh, at one point it was a commuter school. And so you actually had a lot of non-traditional college students. So very, uh, a lot of variety in age range, um, uh, a lot of variety in life, life experience. It's not like, you know, you go to the University of Florida or Mizzou and it's like the traditional college student coming from out of town or coming from the community. It's like folks at USF, you know, they, they have jobs, they, they have lives, they have kids in a way that's, been different from any college that I've been in. So it's it's hard to fit them into that mold as easily. Yeah. Well, you know, Lincoln was half commuter students. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had non-traditional students uh, all the time. So I'm familiar with that idea or that, that, uh, that mm -hmm. environment. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that I'm trying to picture mm -hmm. your sense of of trajectory in your personal mm -hmm. scene where th things need to go. You don't know how mm -hmm. they're going to get there. I see. In the, in the community that you're living in. I see. Um, I, how, how, how is that? How does that feel to you? Are, are you able to have the interactions that you want to have in that regard? <clears throat> so in terms of more traditional community organizing, where like I have a group of folks in this community who I'm organizing with, I don't have that set up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've been connected with certain groups who were doing things, but I, it was more of a, it was more so in a consultant role than it was a community activist type deal. And that's not off the table, but that also isn't necessarily my priority this second, this moment. You know, in some ways, I'm still catching my breath from graduate school. I mean, that was such, I didn't realize how much, how many wounds, how much pain I had carried just to get out of graduate school. Wow. Um, okay. And so it, it almost is like, all right, let me catch my breath real quick. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that, that, really, that, this, that helps a lot in understanding. Yeah, yeah. Thank but, you. But that, that that also doesn't mean that I've stopped what I'm doing. Um, 
in so many ways. Like, you know, so I, because of my journey through Mizzou, my network has grown exponentially. Like people know of me. I, I mean, I've been speaking, I've been doing workshops. Mm -hmm. And so people are reaching out to me all the time to do consulting, uh, conflict resolution, workshops. And so in that sense, I still feel like I'm able to get the word, the good word out about love and connection right. um, and such. So that feels meaningful. Um, but then also, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier, it's like, I don't need to have the title of activist to feel engaged with life. Like everything I do is intended to add value, add love, add connection to the world, you know, just by virtue of me caring about myself. Like, you know, I was taught to hate myself. I was taught to hate my skin, you know? So self-love, self-care, that's a radical form of self-care. Like that is political. Yeah. Um, and so I've, 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 what I've done is I've made everything that I do active, a form of activism. And so in that way, I don't feel like, I don't feel guilt or shame when I'm not a part of the community group or I don't know every community issue. Um, so yeah, in that way I feel engaged, but those things still aren't off. Actually, I don't know if you saw it, but on like my Facebook um, in Gainesville. So when I was on internship in Gainesville, I met some folks who would eventually organize this. It was, it was, it was one of the biggest, even at Mizzou, I'd never been at a march or demonstration that big. And so what we thought was going to be maybe a hundred people turned out to be at least 3000 people. <laughs> and you know, I was a, I was a speaker. I didn't even know. And so sometimes the work finds me and I don't yeah. have to find it. Yeah. Wonderful. I love the, the total embodiment uh, idea that, sort of keeps coming around in my mind. So glad I read the introduction to that book yesterday. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it seems to fit so well. Well, we haven't told people your name lately, uh, Ruben Fologi. Mm -hmm. uh, how do people find you if they want uh, to do a workshop or if they want to connect with you? Uh, you said- uh, First, they need to get ready for some radical change. No, I'm just playing. Um, no, nah, I don't think I'm playing though. Um, but the, the easiest way is my website, www.rubenfalogi.com. I'll spell it. www.r is in red, e is in elephant, u is in up, b is in boy, e is in elephant, n is in never, f is in frank, a is in apple, l is in love, o is in open, u is in up, g is in go, h is in high, I is an indigo.com. You've done that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I'm on the phone, you know, you know, going back and forth with, you know, customer service, I'm always like, get the name right. Did you get the name right? Let me spell it out for you. Let me slow down for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's great. Uh, you have some gigs uh, lined up that uh, you want to tell anybody about or... Uh... I wish, uh, you know, once Corona hit, the music scene changed. Like I was, I was playing guitar with Cameo rel relatively, um, well, it was starting to be more consistently, you know, obviously I had the day job, so I kind of got to fly out when I can, come back to, come back to work. Um, but Corona has shut down live music in a way that's, you know, I mean, I can't imagine music being my only pursuit because 
they're star literally starving artists right now. Right, right, right. Um, but I think you know, you know, every once in a while, I like to put something on uh, social media. Last, last, uh, actually, for Mother's Day, you know, coronavirus was just kicking off. Um, me and my friend in Gainesville, we actually did a did a little acoustic show for mothers, and we we oh. streamed it live. So there's always creative. I'm all about create creativity and and putting things out there. Every, I'm all about everything being an extension of who I am and, and the change. And so I think offering that for mothers on Mother's Day was just a beautiful gift, especially at that stage in the Corona response. You know, everybody was shut in, yeah. you know, yeah. sad, you know, so it was cool. Are your parents doing well? Yeah, everybody's uh, healthy and alive right now. Um, your, your siblings? Uh... Siblings, all five of my sisters. I got a, a beautiful, um, you know, God family. Everybody is good around me. Um, you're not, and, the, you know, you're huh? not the baby, are you? You're not the baby. So I have five siblings and I'm, I'm second to last youngest. Uh -oh. So I actually have a baby sister, but, you know, <laughs> I get hell because I'm the only boy. Um <laughs> But that's, that's okay. Uh, yeah. That's great. Well, we Thanks just have, we have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to you want to share a, a collective wisdom uh, in the last couple of minutes? Uh, just mm. just to say a few things that are on your heart and. Uh, yeah, give me give me a couple seconds to collect them. <sighs> Well, first off, Dick, I want to I want to thank you and your audience for your attention. I, you said two years. I didn't realize it had been that long, but, you know, I really appreciate that persistence. Um, you know, life has been coming at me fast and, you know, I, I try to do as much of this as I can while staying on top of things, while continuing my grounding and healing. You know, when you were asking me about my family, it's like, man, I haven't seen my family, you know. I might see my family once or twice a year at this point, but I, it, it, it's becoming, it feels like just the evolution of maturity and, you know, my, my commitment to what, the work that I'm doing. Like I can't, I just can't go home as frequently as I used to. And, and, you know, my family is understanding and they get it, but that is tough. But I, but I, I am thankful. I'm thankful that you um, invited me here. I'm thankful for the audience who's engaged with, you know, <laughs> you know, peace, things like peace, people for peace, like that is a powerful force. And so I guess, you know, the message outside of that gratitude is, I really hope people can reconnect with the power of love. Because when I found, when I really committed to love and compassion for myself and other people, it changed the way that I, I connected with myself and others. Because I, I even remember at Mizzou, I was doing a lot of that work out of anger. Now it was compassionate, righteous anger, but at the same time, I was also, I think causing some harm, like on a human level, you know? And so there's a very fine line between liberating folks and then also oppressing people. Right. And so I didn't, I wanted to change the essence. I wanted to, I don't like being angry. I don't like that. I don't like fear being the root of, you know, my, action. And so 
in that dark place, well, I don't know if I, we even talked about the dark place I was in, but after 2015, I was in a very dark place. You know, I got transitioned. People in academia know what that word means, transitioned out of my role at the bridge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to stay, remain a student for a couple weeks, you know, because I didn't have an assistantship. You have to have an assistantship to get your tuition waiver as a graduate student. So that dark space became one of the most powerful moments for me because it reminded me, well, first it allowed me to start teaching. And so we didn't get into this either, but I I taught a class called Experiencing Cultural Diversity in the US. And it was an intergroup dialogue based class. So instead of me sitting at the front of the class and lecturing people, we all sat in a circle and the content of the class was based on individual experiences. And so we would talk, of course there was readings and writings but that, that was secondary to connecting with each other as humans. Right. And so, you know, people will come in the first day of that class. They'd be on their phones, uncomfortable because they're in a circle and you can't really hide behind anything. And by the end of this, this experience, I call it a village because that's essentially what we're creating just to begin to learn from each other. People are literally in tears because they don't want to leave the class. They don't want to leave this community. And so I learned that if you create the right conditions for people to learn, grow, and love each other, they will. And so that's my life's work. And I had to find love within to begin to give that to other people. And so I hope folks can seek this for themselves, see what love can bring them in their personal, in their endeavors, not even just personal, in in all of their endeavors, because that's what has shaped me. And that's what fuels me from this abundant place total embodiment of love yes sir wonderful well thank you so much i i i don't want to go they're <laughs> <laughs> <And> my students <laughs> i don't want to leave this place uh but uh, we need to sign off so thank yeah. you ruben yeah always connected dick you, you know you can always get me whenever you need me okay will do And friends, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Mm. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.